I always have to speak to you briefly, and then it can allow for some conversation. And what I want to talk to you about, what I was asked to talk to you, invited to talk to you about, uh, based on Ryan's invitation, is the person of Thomas Aquinas, who is one of the great medieval theologians and, uh, yes, a great Catholic saint, also a member of my order, the Dominican order, which was founded a generation before St. Thomas lived. And, of course, I've lost my own main notes for the talk, so I'm going to depend on what I've given you. So Saint, I don't have the exact dates of St. Thomas in front of me. And, you know, he, he's born, he dies in, I think, uh, 1274. Uh, he's uh, 49 when he dies. So he uh, wrote a copious amount in a short life. Now, j- just to understand a little bit about him. The Dominican Order was founded in 1217 by Dominic Guzman, who was a Spanish priest, an living in an, what would be called at the time an Augustinian canonry. Canons regular, they were priests who lived together in a cathedral, prayed together, prayed the psalms together, ministered to the people of the region of Spain. And Dominic was traveling through southern France in the early 1300s, 1200s, when he encountered a group of people who were called at the time Albigensians or Cathars, who were inheritors of Gnostic ideology. They believed that the physical world was evil, the God of the Old Testament was an evil God in some sense who had created a world of uh, suffering and death and warfare and that delivery from that God and the embrace of Jesus Christ meant the embrace of a purely spiritual world. And Dominic started a preaching band to respond to them, to preach the, the gospel to them and lived, they, they, but they were people who were very um, critical of clergy who were lax or materialistic and so Dominic lived a life of radical poverty to bring to them a counter witness of a person whose life was zealously devoted uniquely to Christ the order expanded quickly and massively and St. Dominic was strongly in favor of studies so he developed this form of life of what are called friars say consecrated men of poverty, chastity, obedience who can change from place to place. Unlike monks, they don't take a vow of stability. The Benedictines, the Cistercians took vows of stability to always live, always live in one place. The friars could move about to different priories. And Dominic founded lots of priories adjacent to the newly burgeoning elite universities of Europe in Padua, Naples, Paris, and Cologne. Actually, Cologne was founded by the Dominicans. Okay, so, so that's just a little background about the order. Thomas Aquinas is born into one of, the, of one of the most prestigious, noble families of southern Italy in a place called Rocca Secca, which is near Rome. His family has many children. He's one of the youngest sons. They are ambitious. He has two, two older brothers who are kind of uh, adventuresome um, men who serve Emperor Frederick for a while and who are, uh, you might call them kind of uh, soldiers at, at large and also politicians. When Thomas Aquinas, as a young man who's very studious, decides he wants to become, he has monastic leanings, the family says, we would like you to become abbot of Monte Cassino. That is the largest Benedictine abbot, abbey, abbey in the world at the time and the most prestigious. So it's, you can see that they're aiming, well, if you're going to be ecclesiastical, we're going to have you run the most important institution of ecclesiastical mona- monastic life in Italy. In fact, one of the most important in Europe. So this is the plan. They send him off to 
as a young boy, seven or eight, to a, a, um, a monastery to be trained by Benedictines. He, he acquires learning rather rapidly. And then at some point he's sent to Naples when he's about 17 to study um, philosophy and theology more intensively. There he, he encounters the Friars Minor. Sorry, not the Friars Minor, that's the Franciscans. What am I saying? The Order of Preachers, the Dominicans. And he... Uh, they're at this point maybe you know thirty twenty years old you know it's not it's 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 not very far along they're thirty years old so Dominic is dead but it's the second generation people who knew Dominic who are running things and he he basically leaves the, the University of Naples and joins the order without his parents blessing or bidding you know he can do that fine it's permitted in, in Catholic canon law and he has every good reason to do it. His family did not take to this well because he joined this upstart young order that was dedicated to philosophical and theological studies and lived radical poverty and had no importance in the church. So they kidnapped him. They sent the two brothers to find him. They took him by force from the friars and they imprisoned him back in the home castle of the family in the upper turret and gave him you know, food and fed him decently and, and basically attempted to convince him to change his mind. This did not work. During the time he was uh, imprisoned, one of the things he did was he memorized, he had, seems to have a photographic memory, he memorized most of the Bible by heart. I mean, he can cite the Bible his whole life kind of at, at will, which is amazing. Not since he tried to make himself a master of the word of God. I mean, he, he commented on the scripture very humbly and very very um, devotedly his whole life, wrote lots of books of commentary and scripture, among other things. At some point they became desperate, so the two older brothers went out and hired a, a, a woman of the night, as it were, a, a prostitute, and introduced her into his room. This is not very subtle, it's rather crude. They were hoping that she would seduce him, which they paid her to do, and that having uh, lost his virtue, he would lose his um, uh, courage and renounce his form of life. It was also the older brothers trying to corrupt the younger brother or something like that, no doubt. Anyway, as is famously recounted and is almost certainly historical, uh, Dom, uh, Thomas Aquinas went to the fire that was keeping him warm and took the hot poker out and brandished it in her face. And uh, she ran out of the room screaming and he put a cross on the back of the door. They let him visit with his sister for a little while, uh, who was younger. He taught her a lot of theology. She ran off from home and became a Benedictine sister. And she became eventually a Benedictine abbess of that monastery. So then they became very discouraged because he's beginning to convert the family. So they let him go. So <laughs> he went back to the Dominicans and he was assigned under, to, he was placed on the tutelage, tutelage of one of the most brilliant men of the time. Albert the Great, a German Dominican who became Saint Albert the Great and who founded the University of Cologne. He went to Cologne with him and founded the university there. Their project initially then, Aristotle had just been translated into Latin. It was causing a major crisis because you had all this, as it were, pagan or philosophical learning that wasn't Christian in derivation, that was threatening the Augustinian synthesis of the high Middle Ages. And Albert and, uh, Arist and Thomas Aquinas were great Aristotelians. They set out to comment on Aristotle, integrate that into university studies, and set up the modern university as it was emerging around the study of philosophy and theology together in harmony. So he embarks on that, on that project with Albert, and then he's moved down to Paris, which is the most prestigious university in the world, where he becomes a master of theology at the age of 25, which was unheard of at the time. He had to comment Peter Lombard's sentences to do this, it's like 
you know, 6,000 pages what he wrote when he's 25. And so that's uh, by the time he's 25, 26. It's unbelievable, really. Um, he was the most prolific author of the high middle ages, bar none. And um, then he teaches in Paris and later in Naples. He became a theologian uh, advisor to the Pope. He produced amazing numbers of monographs. They often had two or three secretaries that he would dictate to in a given day, sometimes more than one at once, so that he could just basically lay out the argument and have the brothers, the other Dominicans, would write the stuff down, help edit it. His handwriting is the worst handwriting of anyone in the Middle Ages. That's like, not an exaggeration. It's unbelievably bad. Um, there's like literally four people in the world who can read it. I think maybe. There's like at least one. Anyway, um, okay, so a few things about his spirituality, just briefly. First of all, what Dominic and after him Thomas Aquinas bring into existence in a more profound way in the life of the medieval church is the idea of becoming poor for the sake of the truth. So you had the idea of evangelical poverty, of course, Francis of Assisi, who's at the same time, Francis of Assisi lives at the same time as Dominic of Guzman, has a radical poverty for the sake of devotion to Christ's service of the poor. But what Dominic and, and Aquinas really emphasize is that you become poor to devote yourself to Christ, who is the truth. And you seek to devote yourself to the study of the truth and to the, the, to the, pro, the promulgation of the truth. It's called the order of preachers for a reason. It's the teaching and preaching mission of Christ in the world that they aspire to. And so Aquinas sees his own vocation as one of radical service to the truth. And it's, you know, in the Catholic tradition, we distinguish poverty of heart from poverty of fact, <coughs> material poverty of like literally giving up ownership. Obviously, there's both in the, the aspiration, but Aquinas is a universal patron of those who seek poverty. We would say in the Catholic tradition, it's a universal aspiration to become poor of heart to serve the truth. All of us are called as Christ disciples to have a poverty of heart in the service of the truth. And the idea here is that if you become poor for the sake of the, the truth, Christ will enlighten you. It's not just one way. Like if you devote yourself to the truth of Christ in prayer and in study, Christ will enlighten you with wisdom. You can become a person whom Christ gives wisdom to. You can become, in the words of the, the order of preachers tradition, a mendicant of wisdom, a beggar of wisdom, to live for the wisdom of Christ and to receive the wisdom of Christ from the Holy Spirit. The second point I want to point mention is the deep sense of the harmony of Christian faith and philosophical reason. This is the most famous thing about Aquinas. He says many times, grace does not destroy nature, but preserves and heals and elevates human nature. So he thinks the greatest way to be a philosopher is to be a great Catholic theologian, a Christian theologian, to be devoted to the truth of Christ. And there's a lot of work that he wrote on the harmony of all the sciences in his in his language sciences are bodies of knowledge, how all the different disciplines of knowledge can be arranged in a uniform fashion, coordinated and harmonious with one another, even hierarchically arranged in a certain way under philosophy in the service of theology. For Aquinas, philosophy plays a very important organizing role for the natural life of the mind and allows us to understand sort of what we're looking at and under what angle we're looking at reality and then subordinate everything to the mystery of God. And then if that's open to itself, if philosophy is naturally open to revelation, Revelation can make use of, and theology can make use of, philosophy, philosophical realism. So this is deep vision, and I've given you a, a little, um, if you ever want to read one book, 
of Aquinas on this whole issue of faith and reason. He has this nice treatise he wrote when he's about 30 called um, Exposition on Boethius' De Trinitate. If you email me, I can always send you a link to it. So most of it's free online. You can buy it too for inexpensively. But here he has three uses of reason in the service of the faith, not, not for philosophy, but for theology. And he says, um, the gifts of grace are added to nature in such a way that they do not destroy it, but rather perfect it. So too, the light of faith, which is imparted to us as a gift, does not do away with the light of natural reason. Accordingly, we can make use of philosophy in sacred doctrine in three ways. First, in order to demonstrate the preambles of faith. Preambles of faith means things that are very adjacent to the faith, like that God exists, that there's a human soul, uh, that there's an objective moral order, which we must necessarily know in the act of faith, because when you believe in the Trinity, you also believe by that very fact in the existence of God. Such are the truths about God that are proved from natural reason, for example, that God exists, that he is one, and other truths of the sort about God and creatures proved in philosophy and presupposed by faith. Second, by throwing light on the contents of faith by analogies, as Augustine uses many analogies drawn from philosophical doctrines to elucidate the Trinity. So like if you say, Christ is the eternal word of the Father. What does that mean? The word in Greek is, as you probably know, logos, reason, concept, thought, so what is that? How is Christ? I mean, Christ is not a human thought. So what does that mean to say he's the eternal word of the Father? That's what he's talking about, thinking about those things. Third, in order to refute assertions contrary to the faith, either by showing them to be false or ne- are lacking in necessity. So that's like the philosopher's role to fend off the bad criticisms of Christianity and show that they're either problematic or they're, well, they're either wrong or they're mm, conjectural. Lastly, Aquinas has a deep, from, because of his engagement with Aristotle, Aquinas has a very deep sense of the dignity of the human body, and he writes about this a lot. Why? Because of the Manichaeans, because of the Albigensians who taught that matter was evil. Aquinas emphasizes that the body is good, but this affects his spirituality deeply. So like when he talks about prayer, the longest question in the Summa Theologiae, Theologia, the famous Theologia, Summa Theologiae, is the question on prayer. But he, he, he adjoins it to a long discussion of bodily prayer. Like to pray in one's body, to pray with one's senses, because we're spiritual and rational, but we're a spiritual and rational animal. And so we pray in an embodied animal, animal way. He has in his treatise on the sacraments a long kind of discourse on like why it's important that we have physical signs given to us by the Lord to symbolize the work of grace, to signify the grace worked in us through the sacraments. He, t- he treats this issue when he talks about why God became incarnate. He looks at Muslim objections, Jewish objections to the incarnation. And he talks about the fittingness that God should become human so that we could have a, fi- a certain kind of physical uh, manifestation of the mystery of God in history. Because after all, we're physical creatures and we learn, we're spiritual, but we learn through the senses. So when you explore Aquinas on that, he's absolutely sane. He's sort of like really humanistic like the decent goodness of human bodily life, of the human spiritual life through the body, and how Christianity is a very embodied religion. Okay, so I gave you some uh, further reading or listening there if you ever want to get into it. Like re- re- I, what I, you know, I, I'm teaching Aquinas a lot, and so I've given you there some things that I think are most approachable if you're coming to it for the first time, including a lot of the SoundCloud li- lectures are also introductory. And... Um, you can always email me, and uh, I think uh, they're sort of in order of suggestion of from.
first to more complicated. 